Hello and welcome to Demo Tapes, the music podcast which hits rewind on the artists and scenes we love. I'm Sarah Jane Kemp and this my co-host is Rick Martin. How are you? Yeah, good thanks. So, uh, where have you been this week? Where have you been? Straight I mean, into I mean, it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is usually where we start, isn't it? What's been going on in your life? Which country have you been in? What, what have you been doing? I have had a very busy year this year. So I've been in Barcelona. So um, I went actually a couple of weeks. I can't remember where we are now. Not last weekend. It's just gone. It's a Monday now, by the way, if everyone wants to know. Um, the weekend before, I went to visit my friends in Barcelona for four nights. Um, and the first night I got there was Halloween. Um, and a DJ called Greg Wilson was playing at 2am at a club. I don't even remember what the club was called it was in some weird kind of um weird a tourist attraction that they built an old rebuilt an old city so you're walking down cobbled streets feeling like you're in old barcelona but actually you're not and then all of a sudden you get to an, an outdoor nightclub which was pretty cool actually but um i mean the best nights out uh, were the ones where you don't actually know where you were right yeah, I mean, I had no idea, because I was just a visitor in, in a city and everyone had bought tickets. I just kind of went along and was I kind of, you know, when you just don't know where you are. Um, but it was great. I mean, Greg Wilson's a DJ that I'm really familiar with. Um, I saw him at Bestival for the first time when I was uh, about 13 years ago. Um, and he was really big on the early 80s electro scene in, in Manchester. And um, since then, I, recently, I say recently, but it was kind of about 13, 14 years ago that he came back and kind of started the disco re-edit movement. Um, and he, if you haven't seen him um i'm not sure you have rick but if you you guys haven't as listeners he's really good at getting the party going with um with kind of old classics uh, that he's re-edited so pr- i've talked about this song before and it, he played it on the night as well which i was thrilled about um prince controversy so he's done a re-edit of that um and yeah so he's just he's really great so that's that's what i got up to in barcelona we had a few shazams as well which uh, which we, we we tend to talk about quite a lot at the moment so hang on, what's the difference between a re-edit and a remix? I've heard a lot about remixes, but maybe not a re-edit. Well, Rick, I have got some copy for you to read out. Uh, a remix is a new interpretation created from the individual parts of a song, whereas a re-edit is created from the entire song. I guess I'd have to hear them kind of back-to-back to understand the difference. But yeah, maybe I'll go now and, and look out and see if I can find any re-edits of songs that I enjoy. Because yeah, I've only ever thought of... I mean, remixes are those things that usually are on the B. We used to be on the B sides of, of tracks, and you wouldn't ever. You'd listen to them once and probably never again. But maybe a re-edit is something that more you would spend more time listening to. I think some re-edits as well sound quite similar to the original song, but they're just enhanced in some ways as well. So I'm trying to think. Uh, Dimitri from Paris actually is another DJ that does some really good re-edits of, um, of songs. So maybe go and go and have a bit of a Google on Greg Wilson and Dimitri from Paris and you might see you might uh, Dimitri from Paris does an incredible one by Chic so you'll probably understand the difference between the kind of original and the re-edit when you hear it so maybe this is some homework for me and the demo tapes listeners to get in touch with their favourite re-edits if you've never if like me you've never heard what a re-edit even is there we go well I think that tells us a bit about our difference in music taste in some ways doesn't it so I'm very much into my dance music and um, you're maybe not so much as I am but maybe we can teach you I'm, I'm willing to be educated there we go um, how about you I was about to talk about Shazam actually but let me hear about what you've been up to first oh yeah I mean I actually got out of the house this week for, oh yeah you yeah. did <laughs> finally <laughs> finally I mean I mean I, I, I quite like spending time in my house now I think my days of uh I was going to say three, three, four gigs a week, but sometimes it was three, four gigs a night back in my NME days, and I couldn't be kind of further away from that. But every now and again, I come out of uh, gig retirement and uh, and go and catch a show, as the kids call it these days, I guess. Uh, and I went to see Pond in uh, Brixton last week. Pond being, I think I mentioned in one of the previous episodes, 
A, one of my favourite bands. B, if you don't know them, they're kind of in they're from like the Perth uh, scene in Australia. Some of them used to be in Taming Parlours. Uh, backing band. They started as a bit of like a joke band, I believe, when they, the, their first album came out. It wasn't particularly serious, but they've they've kind of grown now to the point you know they can sell out a few thousand tickets in uh, in London. Played a fairly big set at Glastonbury this year, and uh, yeah, it's good to go and see them live on this tour. But what did you think? Cause I remember the next day you came into work and I asked you. You're quite vague about it, but you said something along the lines of great, but you were confused about how you thought about their live performance yeah I, I guess I was conflicted because you know I, I love pretty much everything they've they've done from the start of their career or certainly you know three quarters of every album they've done I think is, is absolutely brilliant but um, I think they're one of those bands that maybe live can't quite recreate the vocals musically they sound brilliant they're one of those bands that musically because it's quite progressive music because it's quite um it's quite complex and progressive, I guess. I guess. Well, how, how how am I trying? I'm probably not painting a great picture here, but it, oh, it's quite experimental that they can change things live. You think, oh, that's interesting. Now they've like, for example, in one song, they the kind of coda at the end was a bit from another song, so they kind of mashed two of their songs um, together. So yeah, because it's because it's quite expansive music. They, you could, it's not like you're playing a photocopy every time you play it live. It probably sounds different. But you mentioned the vocals, so expand on that a bit, because when I go to see a band and if, if they can't sing, it really does have an effect on the performance for me. I don't like it. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. I think when I was watching it, there was one point where I thought, if Sarah had come to this gig, <laughs> she would be saying, this is musically, factually good, but those vocals I'm not sure about, because the fact Ooh. is he, he just doesn't quite have the range live, I think, to, to kind of replicate. And you don't always want to hear bands you know almost you know if you want to see a band that sounds exactly as they do on record go and see a pop band that mime along to a backing track or even there was there was some stuff we did in the enemy when i was working on the enemy news desk about bands using backing tracks even quite credible bands and i, and I think that's not what you want to see at, at the same time there is definitely a gulf between how the singer nick sounds on record and then whether he can kind of recreate mm -hmm. That kind of some of the higher and, and lower notes live, but it's tricky, isn't it? Because I was and funny. We're talking about this as well now because I've, I've been listening to a lot of the live lounge um, performances that have been going on over the last sort of month or so, and I keep thinking about this and the fact that pe vocalists are going to the live lounge and vocalists are po kind of pop stars who you might think that might not even be that good in real life because you know in the studio you can kind of mask it somehow but actually the vocals have been really really good and I think there has been a bit of a shift change in that because back in you know 10-15 years ago I don't think you needed to have good vocals because you know it's very well known that some kind of pop stars in particular used to go into the studio and they used to create a voice for them mm. um, but now I think that has changed and I quite like that because as I said I really like vocals but so I think I would be disappointed if I went to see a band but I think a band like that also I would understand because I don't think they're all about the vocals as you've just said. No I, th I think that's very true and you know you, you accept some of the studio trickery on, on record but yeah there was just there was something about it where I thought that gig was good rather than great and yeah. you always hope for great don't you? Especially if it's one of your favourite bands, you really expect, yeah, you hope for great. So, yeah, sorry sorry that it wasn't quite up to your expectations, Rick. <laughs> but um, we have to talk about this as well, because last week we were microwaving our lunches next to each other. Um, and I think you brought it up, actually. And I was so shocked. And I nearly dropped my spoon. Um, and 
I it's no secret that I love Simply Red. I don't think I've ever been secretive about this. My dad, mum and dad took me to see Simply Red when I was a kid. I think I was must have been about ten years old. We went to Birmingham to see him, and it was one of the gigs where they played. Um, the stage was shaped like a guitar, and we managed. Me and my mum managed to get right to the front, and I was waving so intently. And he saw me. Then at the break, he kind of had a little break and went backstage. Hmm. He got someone out, someone to bring me out a signed photo of him, um, because I was obviously looked very cute as a little ten-year-old going mad at the front of his gig. I thought, I bet he was like what is this child and why is she why is she here for a start um but yeah no I'm, my dad used to play stars and a new flame so the 1989 and 1991 album so i was really young um in the car the whole time so it's a real big childhood thing of mine and, and i still i still uh, the newer stuff i'm really thinks actually quite rubbish but the older stuff i love and then yeah rick comes along and asks if i like simply red and i was like yeah, so then we got singing in the kitchen, didn't we? So you're looking for an explanation here, aren't you? I sure am. That's, that's what I'm angling at. I'm like, go on, please explain. Okay, so here's the explanation <laughs> of this. So a little bit like you, Simply Red were quite a big part of my childhood. You know, my mum was certainly a big Simply Red fan. I seem to remember we had one of those videotapes that just had the videos back to back, you know, in the days before <laughs> YouTube and, and the days before, frankly, we had MTV at home. This was the only way we could ever really get to watch music videos. I seem to remember we had a Michael Jackson one that was similar and a Madonna one as well that were kind of on constant rotation. But, you know, as, as I kind of grew up and became a music journo, it's not the sort of... Um, a, it's not the sort of band that you can ever admit to liking. And B, I probably didn't think that I liked their stuff. But then it's funny how you hear a couple of their songs on a TV programme or, you know, you're kind of reminded of some of those tracks. And on the way back from the Pond gig... Uh, I was with my uh, girlfriend, soon to be wife, next year, and we were kind of having one of those jokey conversations about, well, what music do you want played at the wedding? You know, we're starting to look at wedding playlists and um, even like, oh, what would be your first dance song? And I was like, oh, I've got an idea. And then I started playing some Simply Red. And then something has started to turn in my head, especially now that, you know, I don't, I'm not kind of judged on my tastes in music anymore, or I judge myself on my tastes in music, I guess is probably the more accurate way of putting it, that you go, you know what, as, as much of a figure of fun as Mick Hucknall has been, as much as um, they're not really, ever really been seen as a credible kind of music critics band, you kind of can't argue with their kind of run of hits in the early 90s, like Stars and um, New Flame and um, Holding Back the Years and stuff like that. And you think, if I could, I'm actually maybe starting to learn to listen to music without prejudice. Which well, is real well, good. I'm glad. But why do you think they became one of those bands? Because I always remember because my dad was is still a musician in a band, and like I used to play the saxophone, and I'm pretty sure I used to play the saxophone because of bands like Simply Red. Um, and you know, he always used to say things like Mick Hucknall's such a perfectionist. He's, you know, he'll fire someone for playing a wrong note at a, at a live gig, and and things like that. So he it, it, musically very very talented and very very good but then how did he and you're right sold so many hits but how did he become a bit of a character of himself I, th I think he did become a bit of a figure of fun you know I think about 24-hour party people there's a joke at the end about Mick Hucknall um, in that you know there's that story about when he went out and Martin McCutcheon and she was sick in his dreadlocks and his dreadlocks <laughs> had to be sort of cut off so I think some of it was I think because, poor guy <laughs> I don't think you need to laugh at him for that but yeah but I, th I think the reason was that he was a seen as a bit of a like a swordsman as they'd call it in the tabloid press you know he went out with a lot of women um, and then the other side I think he was seen as a bit difficult you know in interviews and stuff he wasn't um you know, a little bit like people like Van Morrison. Van Morrison, there was a recent interview in The Guardian, I don't know if you saw this, with um, Laura Barton, where 
you know, she said she's a huge fan of his music, but my God, was he difficult in the interview. And I think maybe that's a reputation he got for yeah. being a talented guy. And as well, he's one of those who's been a bit of a recluse in recent years, hasn't yeah. he? You don't really see him. They're touring next year, and I know you're looking at getting tickets for that tour, but... You don't Only see him if in the they do their eye, old do stuff. I don't really want the new stuff, if I'm honest. But um, even st- no, you don't really see him in the public eye, and I don't think he really did loads when we were younger either. But yeah, I guess I guess I, I I do appreciate that he was seen as a bit of a a bit of a guy with a big ego. You couldn't really get that close to him um, without him, you know, being being all full of himself. But even the other day, I was sent. Um, I don't know if you follow Paul Denan official on Instagram, everyone. If you do, then you, if <laughs> Paul you don't, Denan. then you, you should have. Have you not heard of this account? Oh, you mean the guy from, the guy from Hollyoke? Yes. He's yeah, got, he's like, got like a, a, joke, a joke account called Paul Denan official. Honestly, they are some of the funniest posts you will ever see because he's taking people from the 90s and that were kind of famous celebrities back then and creating stories and, underneath there, and it's absolutely hilarious. But anyway, he did a post last week um, and it's a picture of Mick Hucknall. Hang on, let me let's see if you can help me describe this. It's a picture of Mick Hucknall wearing a hat and a cross upside down with a goat, um, a chest of whatever it is next to him with a sword in the ground, a skull on the ground, and it's at night time. And it, and the t- the tagline is "Who wants tickles from Uncle Mickles?" And it's just so funny. I mean, and and even today he is a caricature of himself. I think I know why you're bringing this up because you could say that caricature is not a million miles from what you look like. <laughs> Do you know what I said as well? Like, I've got curly, long ginger hair. And I said to Rick last week, why do you think I've got this hair? I've obviously styled myself on Mick Hucknall, which is not true. <laughs> I did believe it, to be fair. I could well <laughs> believe that. Tr- you did go, oh, oh, yeah, as if I'm going to style myself on Mick Hucknall. It's actually quite embarrassing that I've even kind of brought that up because I'm probably never going to get like, over that, am I? Anyway, let's move on. Should we have a little bit of music news? Let's have some music news. Where's the jingle? Yeah, so I, I meant to work on that this weekend and then uh, kind of ran out of time. But look, look, it's coming. There is going to be a jingle for music news. I think if there's one thing that demo tapes needs to take it to that kind of next level, to take us from being the 13th most popular uh, music podcast in the UK for, you know, like one day, uh, <laughs> it's it's a jingle or it's jingles across the show. So there is a jingle coming. Can't wait to hear it. I really can't. So for now, you just have to make do with music news. Right, so first on the agenda, Graham Coxon has written a theme song to a TV show that I really like. Um, the End of the Bleeping World. Have you seen this? Is that this? what it's called? I thought it was just called The End of the World. No, End of the Effing World. No, I haven't seen this, so no. talk, talk me through um, it. So it came out, I think it was a, maybe a couple of years ago, it was commissioned by Channel 4 and then moved over to Netflix, and as soon as it moved over to Netflix, it became a kind of cult hit. Um, it's got two uh, kind of young up-and-coming actors in it, um, so Jessie Barden, who is just, I follow her on Instagram, and she's just brilliant, um, just, just a lovely character, really funny and charismatic, and Alex Law there, um, and they, I think, believe are a similar age. Um, and it, this probably won't, it won't spoil it, but um, the first series is all about Alex who wants to kill somebody. Um, he's kind of had a dream that he wants to kill someone, and then she comes along for a ride, and they become a bit of a modern Bonnie and Clyde. Um, that wasn't meant to rhyme, but it did. And then season two has just come out, um, 
and it kind of follows a bit of a different story but they're reunited and yeah you should definitely watch it because it's very interesting and fun and entertaining um but graham coxon has written the theme tune to the uh, second season and it's very you know you you've listened to the song haven't you rick and i would say very graham coxon i know you've got stuff to say on it but it really does encapsulate the whole kind of mood of the show as well very well oh yeah i mean it ticks all the graham coxon boxes you know it's got um it's got that kind of guitar freak out towards the end the unmistakable kind of vocal of uh, of Graham Cox. And yeah, I think when I listened to it, I thought, I can imagine this living quite well on one of his uh, solo albums. So, And that isn't always the case, is it? Well, sometimes when artists do kind of theme songs for, for TV programmes, either because they've been told it needs to sound different, if you know what I mean, or, you know, you've got to fit a certain theme, or just because they're knocking it out kind of lazily. Sometimes you listen to it and you think, that's not a song I'm going back to, whereas I can imagine Graham Cox and fans this will kind of fit nicely in kind of the canon of, of his sort of best tunes. Yeah, no, completely agree. Um, and there's that, and then there was something you brought uh, up, isn't there, about the Brit Awards? You know, I, I guess there was part of me that wondered whether we even wanted to discuss this, because the Brit Awards have become kind of so irrelevant. You know, when I think back to uh, the 90s, when I was growing up, it felt like a really big deal every year. You know, you waited to see your favourite bands, if they'd won, or some of, like, the famous performances. You know, I always think of the... Michael Jackson, Jarvis Cocker incident. Mm. You know, it felt like big news. It wasn't just music news. It was kind of the, it was in the national consciousness what was going on. And I feel like in recent years it, it's kind of fallen off the radar. There are never any big stories from it. So I think it's interesting that the, it was announced last week the Brit Awards are looking to kind of shake up the Brit Awards, but maybe not in like the best way. I know you have some thoughts on this. Well, that, well, the funny thing is you put it on the agenda to talk about, and my first response was. I heard about this last week I don't really have any thoughts on that and that kind of goes to show exactly what you've just said yeah as a kid it was one of the highlights of the year but now I don't even know when it is I've got no idea it's well it's usually like Jan February isn't it but the the point is they're changing some of the awards they're making it so that the fans now can't vote which seems also a little pointless I know it maybe was a little bit abused in the past and you know you had years where the votes would get hijacked but again that was a story you know Bell and Sebastian I think it was won track of the year or new band of the year over steps because their fans kind of hijacked the vote which was which was funny you know and there's also been this discussion about you know in this kind of modern woke uh, I'm not going to say post I can't, me too. I can't handle it when you say the word woke please don't but it's the, but the, this, the, but it will make sense when I explain what I, the kind of what I'm going on to which is you know this whole notion of there being a best British male breast best British breast British breast, that's Freud- British female. <laughs> yeah, <it's> Freudian <laughs> British female with the yeah. best breasts. Um, I mean, do you want to introduce that? <laughs> it's like rear of the year. Do they still yeah. do that anymore? I think it's a bit of a bit of an outdated concept, isn't it? Yeah, anyway, but, but th- this is kind of my point: that is is having uh, individual gender categories still relevant in an age where we're where we're all about equality and DNA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. get your point. So they've changed, they've changed the awards, but yet they maybe haven't moved it with the mood of, of society. State of the nation, they haven't, they haven't moved it. Maybe, maybe it's baby steps. Maybe we'll see them do something, a bit of a shake-up next year. I mean, if they're, we don't know why they've done this, but if they are trying to get a new audience or maintain, um, maintain the audience that they've already got, then it makes sense to do a bit of a shake-up, but let's mm. see if it works. I'd say let's see in February, but it'll probably pass without us even noticing. Well, that's so. what I mean. I mean... I'd probably wait even though it's happening. I don't know if that's... I probably will. I listen to Radio 1, don't I? I can't believe I'm still listening to Radio 1, but I am. So I think, you know, we, we don't want to continue on this kind of downer of a theme. Should we crack into 
uh, what the kind of main uh, the kind of main element of this episode. Sure. So you spoke to a guy called Chris McClure, didn't you, a couple of weeks ago? You did a phone interview with him. So where to start with this, I guess? I guess Chris McClure is uh, a face you would know if not the name. And what do I mean by that? So he's the guy who appears on the front cover of the Arctic Monkeys debut album. Uh, the guy kind of smoking the the cigarette, and you'll find out. Bless him. He every I think it was every two days. He said that he he has to talk and recount the story to someone again and again and again. I feel really sorry for him because of this. But it's very difficult not to introduce him as that because again, people know the face yeah. if, if they don't know the name. He's also the brother of John McClure of Reverend the Makers, who was on the show a few weeks ago. But this isn't about necessarily nepotism. It's not that John had a word in my ear and said, "Oh, by the way, my brother." Do you want to do an interview with him because he's, you know, he's got some interesting stuff going on? But actually, what it is, he uh, released a couple of weeks ago a documentary that he's been working on uh, with Vice and Enemy um, around uh, alcohol, a kind of alcohol in the music industry and addiction and kind of mental health. And um, it's funny, you know, we kind of got in a conversation on Twitter with him about this, and that he was really interested in some of the elements that come out in our interviews with um, with Tom Clark and and John McClure and and. Um, and Phil from the Twang, you know, and there was that kind of mental health element. And he, he actually picked up on something you talked about, about mental health in the music industry, and said, you know, it's kind of coincidental that I'm working on a documentary. So we thought, you know, perfect chance to kind of get his his point of view on, on the documentary. Yeah, it seems like a really good fit, doesn't it? Um, and this, as we said before, this wasn't really intended. And I've, I've seen that documentary, and I think it's really good, and it's it's really good to shine a light on something that is so prevalent within that industry and it's really good actually to see a couple of people in particular the woman I can't remember what her name was but I remember kind of seeing her they were they interviewed her at Brixton Pop Brixton it looked like they were at um, and she was talking about how she's she's kind of battled with alcohol and alcoholism in the music industry and um, now she doesn't drink anything and, and her life has become much more enriched and better because of it and her mental health has has, has become much much better because of that um i think there's still challenges with that um in the industry because obviously it's it's still rife within the industry and people sometimes don't feel comfortable to to be around it when they have when they've abstained for so long for themselves for whatever reason that might might be um but there's still i think there's a bit of a divide in in the industry but it's really good that it's been starting to be talked about and i think the the interview you know having someone like chris head it up is really really good i think it's a three-part documentary isn't it yes yeah, so so there's a couple of other smoking parts and then out, drugs yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing those ones as well. So what we recommend you do, obviously don't switch off the podcast now and run away to, to, to watch this documentary. We will put the link to the documentary in the description of this pod, so do go away and kind of have a watch. Um, but I guess the, the other thing to say about Chris is that we also have a kind of vague shared history, and I, and I, I use the term vague there in the sense that um, he he's from Sheffield, um, and you know when I was re- re- sort of interviewing bands like Arctic Monkeys, Reverend the Makers, Milburn, he was always kind of there. You know, did, would I say that I knew him back in the day? That would be a stretch. But we were definitely kind of um, kind of aware of, of each other. And it's funny how with this interview, and I don't want to give too much away, but the chat kind of starts talking about his documentary. But then naturally we kind of evolve into um, in, into kind of talking about the old days in. In Sheffield, he was also in his own band in Sheffield as well, the Violet Maze, a little bit later than kind of the Arctic Monkeys and Reverend emerged. So yeah, the chat kind of, it's not what you necessarily expect going into, you know, if you're going 
wanting to interview someone about mental health and alcoholism and some quite raw subjects, you don't end up wanting to kind of end the interview laughing at kind of the past in Sheffield, but it flows quite naturally. It I does. Think. I think it was quite nice, actually, having listened to it. I was listening, I was listening to it about 6am, actually, on the way to the airport to Barcelona, but and, um, and I was kind of smiling at some points because of that, because it was quite a nice... Um, you could tell there was a nice little rapport between the two of you, and, you know, it's always good to be nostalgic, isn't it? And you can definitely hear when people are enjoying talking about things that they remember from the past. So I guess, yeah, there's probably a good point to, to play out the interview and then we'll uh, we'll have a little chat the other side. So, yeah, this is uh, Chris McClure uh, recorded a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, so I've got Chris McClure on the line here. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to know. He really had to introduce you. I mean, I think of you as, uh, you know, a guy from the Sheffield music scene I used to know. You are on the cover of, obviously, the Arctic Monkeys debut album, front man of the Violent May. Um, but now you're working in sort of documentaries. So how, how has that come about? Um, I released some comedy videos online around six years ago, um, and a friend from Sheffield had helped me edit. I had, it was my idea, and I created and directed it. But I would, I'm no good with equipment or technology, so a friend uh, called Ross Neal helped me edit it. Um, and I haven't spoken to him since. Really. I, I didn't speak to him for a few years and then he called me randomly around two or three months ago and originally wanted to make he was making these documentaries uh, for Vice and NME surrounding addiction in music industry and I think originally he wanted to talk to me because one was about alcohol which is available now and I think by the time the listeners hear this episode two and three maybe out which are on smoking and class A drugs and how they're intertwined with music industry. Um, and initially, I think he wanted to talk to me about uh, the image on from the Arctic Monkeys album, which obviously uh, you can see I'm advocating smoking on it and numerous other things. Mm. Um, and so I think he thought it'd be interesting to get my perspective on it because people recognise that image straight away. Um, and upon the conversation I have about six months ago well it will be six months um, decided I needed to stop drinking alcohol so it seemed and at the time of him so I gave him that information and he went away we didn't speak and then he come back to me and said listen I've thought about your story and what you've been through as such and also the link to that image um, and we're quite keen for you to present it and maybe like, or not tell my story through it, but there is a story there in terms of I've had a few issues. Uh, obviously, it's a very recognisable image, and they just thought it were a, an interesting avenue to wander down to tell the story, basically, about addiction in the music industry. And I think there's, there's a really nice balance in the film around that, that, yeah, I mean, it, it probably would be difficult to produce a documentary like that without some kind of knowledge of the subject yourself or some experience and I think the way that your story's weaved in with, with kind of the stories of others I think really works well Yeah I mean I was quite nervous because you don't walk around with a flag, a flag waving a flag saying I've stopped boozing um, and it's a very personal thing between me and obviously my ones around me um, and I don't want it to you know I've got to be careful how it comes across but mm. uh, Part, part of I, I just found it. I thought 
Well, if I'm going to tell people, and it's, I might as well do it in a productive way, in, in a way that hopefully may help others. Um, so that's kind of how I viewed it, really. It's interesting you say that, because, I mean, I, I guess I've got a bit of experience of this as well. I stopped drinking a couple of months ago, not because... I felt like my drinking was out of control, but I went on this diet that where it, it basically is called a keto diet and it doesn't make any sense oh, to have yeah. alcohol with it. And I've kind of got to a point now, two months in, and these may be famous last words, where I'm thinking, I don't know when I go back to alcohol now. I've, I've, I feel so good for not having even having the odd beer or the odd glass of wine. You know, I've got four kids now, so the chances to go out on the, on the piss are kind of few and far between. But those little <laughs> glasses of wine or those little beers on the Friday night, even just cutting them, I'm thinking, well, why, why would I go back to having that many calories, carbs, and a headache in the morning? Yeah, I mean, my problem with, the problem I had is when I started, I didn't want to stop. So, whereas most, your average Joe will say, like, do you want to go to pub and have a couple of pints? Well, I couldn't think about worse than going to pub and have a couple of pints. You might as well said to me, if you said to me, do you want to probably have 25 drinks? I'd be like, yeah, I'm straight there. And no, did no. So once I popped, I didn't want to stop. And then it'd end up in an old world of like, fuckery, really. So it got to a point where, and it got to a point where it probably affected most areas in my life. That sounds really drastic. It weren't like I were in a corner shivering with a bottle of empty vodka. It wasn't that. Mm. But uh, it did get to the point where I change, situations changed, and I had to deal with consequences when I was in my drink, and I had enough. So initially, the the thing I did was speak to people about who'd been through it themselves, and thus far it's worked, and I feel a lot better, and I've probably been more productive in the last six months than I have been in the last seven years. And it's that kind of productivity I wanted to talk to you about as well. You know, I've, I've seen the, docu- the the alcohol documentary and you've got kind of a real different kind of array of people speaking on there. You know, Adam Fichek obviously drummed with uh, yeah. Baby Shambles and is now a psychotherapist. Um, there's another girl from, I think it's a record label on A&R who kind of gives her perspective. Yeah, she's worked in all sorts of areas of music industry. So how hard was it to get people to come on and, and, and talk about these things? You know, whether it's a musician, whether it's someone in the music industry, was was it was it difficult to convince them to come on and tell their story? Essentially, it's a difficult conversation to approach because essentially you talk, you're approaching someone about talking about something that's very, very, very personal to them. Um, I mean, I had a crazy 20s due to numerous reasons and... I were in that circle and there were people I knew who'd recovered from that, from addiction, and I contacted them and said, listen, I'm doing this, would you? And they were saying, listen, if it were me and you in a room, I'd talk to you all day long. I'd talk to you too. But uh, a lot of them said I protected my close ones from the reality of my addiction. So for me to go on camera and speak about it doesn't feel right. But we just had an ethos to look like, You've got. A, it's not a jovial subject, so whatever the guest or, or whoever wanted to appear, it were on their terms, really. And people did turn us down, but um, essentially, I mean, Adam Fistek was fascinating. He's been in a a band such as Baby Shambles, which was renowned for 
debauchery and excess. Well, one one member in particular, I mean, is the the ultimate icon of excess, I guess, Pete Doherty. Yeah. Um, and now he's a qualified psychotherapist, so which is amazing, really. And uh, I did try and get Pete on, and I spoke to Pete because we've got a lot of mutual friends, but uh, for reasons, other reasons, they didn't want to appear on it. I mean, it's all good, but I thought it, it would have been nice to end on Pete because Pete kind of is the start of my story in terms of how I got into music properly. In terms of being a fan of the Libertines back in the day? Yeah, I mean, that time, that for me, that time of... 2001 to 2002 I was 15, 16 and up until that point I had to listen to my brother's records and go in his room and nick his records mm. and still like trying to justify at 15 or 16 that Oasis were cool where the Oasis had gone years before that in really and then like you had you went I was going to school and there were people into like Lip Biscuit and stuff that spoke nothing to me Absolutely, yeah, I remember it well. We're the same age, so I, I, I remember it yeah, very yeah. well, yeah. So, so when Stro- is this it, landed by Strokes and up the bracket, that changed everything. Uh, and going back to, linking it back to the documentary, I did see Pete. Essentially, I think what Libertines did was make it okay for, for like, northern working class, or uh, not just northern, but to make it okay for working class lads and lasses to like get into poetry and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Almost like explore. That's hard to picture now because because they went through that media circus and because I imagine he's still got certain issues. The Libertines, at the heart of it, was a beautiful band. Um, and it's it's easy to forget that that their ethos were really beautiful. Um, and I speak, I spoke about that, but I, I saw. So Coming back to it, that's why I would have liked to have ended on Pete and talking about his, the issues that he's faced trying to navigate his career through music whilst they were facing addiction. I mean, I, I guess he's probably more well known for the, the I guess, the, the drug problems, but I guess drug and alcohol usually go hand in hand. It's just usually that the drug is the, is the more prominent thing because that's the one that probably more quickly destroys your life than alcohol. Was alcohol probably more of a slow? Is it more of a slow burn? I don't know. How do you view yeah. it? I mean, yeah, I never really particularly had an issue with drugs. Do you know what I mean? Um, and, well, I didn't. Um, uh, alcohol has short-term effects in terms of your actions when you're under the influence of it that you're continually trying to pick up and fix. Pick, pick up and fix every weekend um, and it, yeah it's more a slow burner I'd say the way I describe it is drinking alcohol to someone who's got an issue with it is imagine that you're born with a this sounds really weird but a, a, a perfect glass ball and every time you get drunk you drop that ball mm. up. eventually after like 15 years of caning it too much that ball's not going to look like... It's, like, damaged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, it's, it's a very interesting way of looking at it, actually. I never, I'd never really thought of it like that. But that's a very visual metaphor, isn't it, for yeah, essentially what you're doing? Like, I don't know why I come up with that, but... Um, and essentially, like, what you want to do is try and clean it and get it back to what it were, because somewhere deep down, there were a nice, beautiful thing there. 
Mm. So uh, maybe that don't make sense, but um, makes sense to me. But yeah, yeah, going back to Pete, I don't know, and I did kind of fall in love, or I think we all fall in, fell in love with that like last of the rock stars almost. He had this, and no matter what people say. And it's not just the press that are obsessed with it. People are obsessed with it. Are obsessed with that still, even to this day, that like rock and roll debauchery, like wild image. That there's something probably because probably because a lot of people get to live their lives through the other person doing it. Exactly. Yeah. Um. Uh. Which I and I imagine Pete has got a mild different viewpoint on it, being in the middle of it, but um. There was something attractive, attractive towards it. Um, I mean, I've got to admit, be, even being a music journalist, I mean, part of that was, you know, I wasn't just doing that because of the writing. I was doing that because the lifestyle that that, com- that comes with it. You know, you think, well, I, I probably can't pick up a guitar and do that, but I can do the next best thing and be hanging out with them. You know? Oh yeah, completely. Um, it always because before, like. The monkeys were successful, or my brother was successful, or I'd got any sort of sense of anyone being successful. Music and that lifestyle and that image seemed so far away. They were like something that happened in another world. Mm. You just read about it on pages of Enemy or on on you saw it on TV, and it, it would like, oh, that's that world. And suddenly, what happened is. Like it was like walking behind the. It was like someone had opened a curtain and gone, "Oh, you lot, do you want to go behind the curtain and have a look what really happens?" Yeah. And it was like fuck, like, and it is exciting. It we, we really were exciting, but not just me and other people. It had like certain consequences to it. But some people didn't want the party to end essentially, and the party at some point has to come to a close. I mean, I do want to jog, you know, go down memory lane on, on the Sheffield scene uh, a little bit later on in the interview. Yeah. I wanted to ask you another couple of things about about the, the documentary. Another thing that came through to me, and this has actually come through through some of the interviews we've done for this podcast, is about things like the ease of alcohol when you're in a band. And that people, it almost feels like people are only starting to catch on now. That is it any surprise that if you, as, as a tradition, it's a tradition with a band that you go and play a gig or you go and play a tour... And you get given a big rider. You know, Tom uh, from The Enemy was talking about this. You turn up to a gig and, you know, there's five bottles of Jack Daniels, a crate of lager. You're probably not even going to drink it all there and then. He's, I think he pretty much admitted some of it he just chucked in the back of his car and then, you know, filled his garage with yeah. it, you know. So, I mean, it's funny how that, that has been such a staple of, of rock, the rock and roll lifestyle and the, and the music industry for so long. And yet people are maybe only catching, people are only drawing the most obvious of, of kind of lines between the two of, is it any wonder that alcohol can become a problem for bands, especially when 90% of their day is spent doing nothing? It's only that, that hour, hour and a half exactly in the evening when they play live. I mean, I think the society now, we're, we're more health conscious. Um, and I think we're more aware of the fact that we need to be have a certain amount of well-being at work, which is essentially what musicians are doing. They're working. Um so yeah, I remember on, when I went on tour, you'd walk into a room at half past one in the afternoon with then there's two bottles of vodka, two bottles of whiskey, there's unlimited lager, and essentially bread and cheese. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's like, right, and then you've got 
four hour till Bandoop soundcheck. I mean, I was selling merch at some of these gigs, so I had, I had a set of merch stand up in 10 minutes and then got straight, I cracked straight in. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you've essentially sat in a, a, a town or a city that you, you're not familiar with, that you don't know many people, um, and you are in a room with your mates, and naturally, there's a high probability someone's going to start cracking a bottle open or have a drink, and then... You do your gig, you're full of adrenaline band. Everyone wants to party with you. Um, like you said, it's, it's just like the, the actual working hours are probably two hours a day. Mm. And you, at restaurants, you're saying there's a load of booze. Exactly. But do, do you think it's something that do you think it's something that needs to change in the industry? I mean, again, you know, you're you're not touring a touring musician now. I know you're in the Violet May and and toured with them but you know obviously your brother John McClaws in Reverend the Makers and they're, they're still touring although in a very different way my understanding a very different way than the they used to now they've got pair you know they've got kids and responsibilities and stuff but do you still see the same riders um backstage with bands is it changing I mean filming docket there's two things really one I think we shouldn't underestimate young people I think they are very much aware of they're a lot more health conscious than even my, me and my friends are at 30, I'm 33 so I'm not going to patronise a young person and say oh they, you don't know what you get yourself in for because one they need to like experience it and you don't want to take all the fun out of it and two they're probably a lot more health conscious than us anyway mm. so but I mean I would put money on that the, the bands that last the bands that have got durability and that stand the test of time will not be boozing on a level that we imagine. I mean, Keith Richards is, is sold on this image of... Keith Richards, I have no doubt about it, and I'd be admit, has probably had a, a personal trainer for the last 15, 20 years. He's probably fit as a fiddle reeler. However, that doesn't suit the... I don't get... I, I imagine that doesn't suit the marketing machine. That's the oh, no. No, it doesn't. Um, so they'll sell... They won't, but... And... Yeah, I mean, even seeing my brother's band, Revenant Makers, seeing how they've tried had to adapt to life on tour because you come become aware of it. And the bands that are essentially really good and go out and just think, well, we're kidding it, don't laugh. So, I mean, Libertines fell apart. It seems like it ended up absolute misery. Mm. Um, but then again, like, ring someone up and go have you heard this new band they're amazing they're all the vegan and all drinking green tea it's not got the same ring to it has it no it certainly hasn't no although that that would it weirdly be a, would have been a selling point back in the day and that's all the journalists would have wanted to ask him about probably yeah, yeah. um uh, so yeah I'm, but i think the i mean look at you look at venues and festivals the the, the industry's like swamped with alcohol money in order to keep its head above water, literally. Oh yeah, all, all, loads of tours. Yeah, we won't name the brands, but there's plenty of uh, you know high-profile tours and club nights sponsored by lagers. And I mean, the Reading and Leeds Festival used to be the Carling Weekend. I remember that. Yeah. that that's in in kind of fairly recent memory. Well, probably you can't pull the rug under that because the whole industry would probably collapse if you pulled that money out of it. But essentially, I think the important thing is if. It definitely needs to be a, a more concerted effort to, from what I've, from having spoken to people, in 
So, so when you meet your record label, when you meet your publishing publishers, you should be meeting someone who you know you can go to. Essentially, an occupational health. Yeah, yeah. Where you know that if shit starts getting dark or you have you experience problems, you know you can go to that independent body and say, "I'm struggling here." Mm, mm. I think that's probably the more sensible and practical option. Or, and there is people out there doing it. We spoke to Joey Hastings. That help musicians. They do amazing work. Um, but just being more mindful of it because essentially a musician is employing a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people rely on them, don't they? Yeah. Uh, to make the cogs turn. So, but I think that's what, rather than say, right, ban the sale of this and you can't advertise on this, I think it's more a case to let's put a support network in place within the industry. So that people know where they can turn when it does when shit does hit the fan. Absolutely, I don't know if you saw James Blake's comments earlier this year about kind of the effects of touring on on mental health for, for you know musicians and um, you know I don't know if this is necessarily an alcohol or a substance thing with him, but more just the grind of of being on that treadmill of doing gig after gig after gig, and again you know you're you're a touring you you're a touring musician yourself and your brother is. I guess I'm interested in your thoughts on that as a point of view, even going, not even just talking about the, the, the kind of substance side of things, but the, the, the job of a Tory musician and the effect that can have on, on your mental health. Well, it's just not... In no other sector, really, would you get that scenario of, right, you're going to go away for, from your family and all your, everything you're familiar with for six weeks. You're going to work every single night at unsociable hours... I'm saying this from a real, like, hockey elf point of view, almost. It sounds a bit, like, boring, almost, but essentially that's the truth. Mm. Uh, You are going to be travelling constantly for some time, and you're not going to get much sleep. That's the fact. And if you work for Cadbury's, you'd be kicking off. uh, If you work for, like, some corporation or... Some institute, you'd be kicking off left, right, and centre. But a musician is just expected to do it. Yeah, it's the same with football, isn't it? It's like people expect footballers to be robots because they get paid so much yeah. money that that oh well, they can't possibly have problems with their mental health, or they you know they should expect to be booed and spat at and whatever on the pitch because that's what we're paid to do. There's definitely parallels <laughs> there between footballers and, and musicians, I reckon. Yeah, I mean. And essentially, I think, and this this goes way beyond music or addiction or anything, and I'm guilty of this as well. Essentially, and this sounds really cheesy and like hippie, but essentially, I think as a maybe it's a country thing. We need to be a bit nicer to each other Mm. because we seem to, especially we influence social media, and I'm hundred percent guilty of it myself. I think we've almost. It's become accepted that we can say what we want, when we want, and how we want to anyone. Mm. And I think we need to take a, I don't know how we do that. We take a step back and treat, and it gets down to basic, how do you want to be treated as a human being? Just be a bit nicer to people. Oh, I think, I, think as, I think as a species, we're still getting to grips with the technology we don't really fully know, understand how to oh, use yet, you know? It's... Yeah, it's, it's mild herderism. We're not, we're not, we're not, we're not adapted to it one bit. I not mean, I know people 
different. We had serious mental health issues because it's a double-edged sword, though. Because the, the, the musicians, if you're talking about it from a music point of view, they are dependent on social media completely. Um, yeah, it caught it's it's such a source of pain for him at the same time that it's a right double-edged sword. Mm. So there's there's loads of areas of improvement, but. Um, I mean, some people might say, well, it's all right for you to see, you're not in the industry anymore, but I see it. I see it from my friends and my family, and I've done this documentary, I've talked to people, and I can see what's happening. I mean, just in terms of uh, picking up on something you said a bit earlier on, um, and I guess lighten the mood slightly, you know, we, we don't want everything to be kind of kind of doom and gloom in this. You know, in the, in the film, you introduce yourself as the cover star of the Arctic's album, you know, you look at you know, you're flicking through some vinyl and, and um, you know, you talk about even the, the day that you shot the the sleeve for that. I mean, uh, you know, that, that album came out almost 14 years ago now. I mean, what, what are your memories of of that time, you know? And again, as the listeners will know from earlier episodes, I was around at the same time in the same city, desperately trying to get interviews with everyone involved and usually getting left at the stage door and stuff. But uh, so we kind of saw it from from, you know, two different uh, perspectives. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. to have your face on the fastest-selling debut album of, of all time, I mean, it's it's a, that must be still difficult to get your head around now, right? Yeah, and um, it's difficult, this one, because on one hand, it's absolutely amazing, and the stories that I've... And, like, even going back to what we've just been discussing about these documentaries, like... I'm not a killjoy. I have parted with Bestrom and I've like ninety uh, percent of my memories are absolutely banging. Like some unbelievable times. The Monkeys album's a weird one because I have to have a conversation about that album. I would say on average once every two days. Mm. Still, after fourteen years, someone will mention it. So, but like, so like, on one hand, essentially, I've. I've had a conversation about the same subject for 14 years, which is essentially a, a conversation about someone else's success, uh, which put me in a bit of, it's put me in a, it can put you in a bit of a weird headspace, like you, you almost feel like sometimes you lose your own identity through it. Yeah. Because if I'm at a party, say, or a, a christening or anything, Christmas do or whatever, someone in room guaranteed will say, that's kid off, you know that album. That's kid off run, and naturally someone will come up and say, and I'm like, I've had the same conversation every two days for the last fourteen years. Yeah. Um, but on that, I'm, and that's whatever. But on the other hand, like, it provided me with opportunities, and it meant it let me see things in my twenties, which I, could, I wouldn't have ever dream, dreamt of. You know what I mean? It were amazing. So, you know, you were 19 at the, at the time when you took that photograph was taken. By my math, because we're the same age, I think I was 19 when that when that album came out. Or maybe just turning 20, because it was early 2006. Yeah, I'd have been 19, yeah. I mean, I suppose that no one at 19 could probably perceive what, you know, A, a that it was going to be the fastest. I mean, we all knew the singles were doing well at that point, but I don't know, I don't know how early you decided, you know, they decided you were going to be the kind of sleeve shot and how... How much you'd have known that, that that you know how big that album was going to be? I've been around the band since they started, um, and grew very close to them. 
as friends. So I'd been through, I'd seen it right from the start. At the point, and then I worked on their first two UK tours. Um, first ever two tours they did, I, I'm loosely, loosely describing myself as, well, officially I were called the Guitar Tech, mm. which you could laugh, I could fall off a chair laughing about that. Mm. Um, essentially, I were a mate to bring on tour to just have a laugh with. Um, I think they just wanted someone who were quite normal to be around them. Because at that point, you knew it would kind of be... They were selling like 200 venues out at that point and it was, it was gearing up and you knew they were going to be a level of success. Um, but I lived in Manchester at the time. I'd moved to Manchester to study. And I mean, to put it into perspective, I remember in the first year of our university, I they came to they played a gig. What was that venue called next to Oxford Road Station? Uh, Jabber, not Jabez Clegg, is it, or is it not Jabez Clegg? No, uh, that's a bit further anyway, down. I should, I should know that. Is it the attic? Like, the attic, I think it was called. Yeah, the attic. And uh, they played a gig there, and they come over to and they were like, we had like drinks in Miles' residence before gig, and at the gig was me, my housemate. And two people from Sheffield, four people, less than twelve months, less than twelve months later, they could have sold Emmy and Arena. Out. Oh yeah. So that's the rate we're talking of success. But I, in terms of the album, they asked me to do it around around four or five months before it came out. And at that point, I thought this is this is going to be a bit mad. But I didn't even like no one could have pictured just how big it were when it had, when it actually dropped I knew, I knew it was going to be a successful album like any successful album but not, not like you could even argue like it were like generation different like you know that sort of level of I didn't realise it'd be that level I, I, I don't think even I saw that coming you know and I, I was there on some of the some of the early tours and I wouldn't say the early gigs the band did their earliest gigs in 2004 I think I first saw them in Kind of mid two thousand and five, I think it was March two thousand and five when I saw them, and they were they were rising quickly. But I don't think anyone could have seen. It's almost like they smashed through the ceiling and just kept going. If you know what I mean, we all had a ceiling of like the Libertines was the ceiling, and, and they weren't even headlining festivals at that point. So it's like we couldn't really really conceive how big it was going to be until the first couple of singles go to number one, and then the album becomes the fastest selling, and you're like, God, I, I can't. You almost can't believe what you're seeing before your eyes, can you? I remember Andy Nicholson ringing me, the bass player, during the uh, and telling me that they were supporting the choral at Leadman. Yeah, I went to that gig. And, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and genuinely, everyone were like losing their heads, thinking, "Oh my God, this is it!" Like, a, a year or so later, they were like the headlining Glastonbury. You know yeah, what I mean? yeah. Like, the rate of which it went were just he were out of control. Uh, I mean, I remember the week it came out, I woke up on the Monday and I think I went, I started to go into uni and then I thought, it would just, my phone wouldn't stop and bearing in mind they wouldn't do interviews, monkeys, they turned down like an insane amount of press. Um, and I, my mum rang me and said, Chris, I've got like Daily Mirror all these like red tops and all this press on my doorstep 
like watch less sense and I'm like, well, I'm not there. Like, mm. and then I had people hanging around university, and I'm like, fucking hell, like, I don't know, it freaks you out, you know what I mean? One, on, Sunday, on Sunday, day before, I'm just fucking sat in Manchester in my flat, and then literally, like, come nine o'clock Monday morning, there's press all over my mum's house and stuff, and I've not even got out to do it, really. Yeah, yeah. Talking about the early tours then, I was wondering if you were on the uh, tour where the band took me up to Nottingham for the day, and because uh, they were playing in, in Nottingham, and there was a game of uh, Pro Evo or FIFA, right, on the bus. Well, I, I, I was going to mention it, because I still don't know the full story. It only came out in the NME years later that the band had even realised I'd done this. Were you there for that? Can you solve this mystery for me? I don't think I was there, but I've heard this numerous times, and... Andy Nicholson still to this day swears. Well, he, for years he went on about. He went that fucking Rick Martin from Enemy. This is the version I've got. You okay? We can compare notes, yeah. So Andy reckons that that all he says, fucking Rick Martin, is a cheating bastard on Pro Evolution Soccer. <laughs> <laughs> is this what you're on about? This is what I'm on about, yeah. Andy reckons that you pulled up. He was playing you. He was saying, I want to beat enemy on a computer game. So you, he was having this game of Pro Info with you. And he got out to a service station or wherever you were. And you unpaused the game, put one in back in there, and re-paused it. And still to this day, I don't think he's ever forgiven that. Oh, no, I know. That, that, that is exactly the version I've heard. I think, it was, I think it was actually when they were loading the gear into the venue is when it happened. Right. And then I, and I got out and, you know, joined in with carrying a few symbols in and that, but just didn't say anything, just pretended like nothing had happened. But that, that, that to be fair, I was at uni at the time, that was classic uni behaviour. Your mate goes for a piss, then you unpause the game and, and you score a couple of goals. Are you admitting that you did it? I mean, put it this way, I don't, I don't vividly remember doing it, but I can definitely believe that I did it, if you know what I mean. had a few drinks and got that mixed up disgusting behaviour and I mean from that, from then on I never, in, I never interviewed the band again so we've talked about this on the podcast I mean I could probably be uh, be sat backstage on the Tranquility Base tour if I hadn't done that but that's probably a metaphor for my entire music journalism career to be honest it's fucking fantastic to be honest uh, I'll have to get a, a more up to date quote on Andy's views on it to be honest <laughs> You could perhaps pass on my apologies as a starting point. I mean, oh, he's gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ring you and say, I suppose, remember Rick Martin? As soon as I said, that fucking twat cheated on revolution. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, the downfall. <laughs> the rise and fall, yeah, my rise and fall. Uh, and I mean, just thinking, just thinking more generally about Sheffield at the time, obviously the Monkeys emerged, and then, you know, your brother's band, Reverend the Makers, he'd already been in bands in Sheffield like 1984. They emerged, Bromhead's Jacket, Milburn. You, your band came a bit later, I think, Violet Maze. When I, when I looked up the, the dates, that wasn't kind of around the time of the Monkeys coming out. But, I mean, 
do you think what do you think that did for Sheffield as a city overall? I feel like you know when I came there uh, in about two thousand and four, the spotlight hadn't been on that place probably since Pulp. If you know, and then probably before that, you're talking yeah. in in the eighties with Human League and and stuff like that. And you, you know, you thought of northern musical cities, you thought of Manchester, Liverpool, even Leeds, arguably ahead of Sheffield. But what do you think it did for Sheffield overall in terms of when a band like the Monkeys breaks out in that way? I mean. I think Sheffield is a very individual place in terms of it doesn't do what Manchester, Liverpool and London does. London's quite separate, I suppose, but it doesn't do what Liverpool, especially Liverpool and Manchester does, where it shouts from the rooftop about the culture that has been produced from the city. Sheffield, if you're looking at it historically, is a very working class, like them other two cities are, but it's a very modest city. It probably goes back to steel workers, where you went to work, you had a few pints, you went back to your family, and you kept your head down. It's very much. Whereas when you walk through Manchester, they will just they'll drown you in Manchester culture. Sheffield does it in a very subtle way. Um, What's even stranger about the fact that it came from Sheffield is it came from a very specific part of Sheffield. It came from North Sheffield, mainly. I'm talking mainly. In terms of Milburn, my brother's band, Reverend Makers, Arctic Monkeys, it came from a certain area of Sheffield. Now, I don't know whether that's got something to do with us feeling detached from the city centre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they must... You could analyse it. Someone will analyse it and probably get a theory. But it well, first you feel proud because you want to put your city on map. I think my brother probably went against great because my brother is quite. My brother's band used to get labelled as a mank band straight away, but that's because my brother had a lot of confidence. He almost went against that Sheffield thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he was like, "We are brilliant. You need to listen," and it were really vocal. Um, I mean, monkeys encapsulated it in terms of like they just want to get their head down and do the thing. But I mean, that it were amazing. It were amazing for the city. And I mean, I in years after people, you see people from like Mexico, America coming to live here because mm. of what happened. Um, on the same way, like anything that goes that gets that popular, there's then the hangover after. Um, so there were a, a bit of an hangover from trying to cheer. And what I think it did do is there were some good bands following Monkeys, but nothing, when they did, say they got played on Radio 1, it didn't seem exciting to anyone. Yeah. Because of what, what had happened, whereas really what they were doing were really amazing. Because the, because the bar uh, had been raised so high with the Monkeys. The bar had gone that to the solar system, so anything below that were like, oh yeah, nice one. We're really... If they'd done that pre-monkey, it'd have been like, oh my God, like, you're doing it. I mean, I, I remember, you know, again, I, I came to Sheffield, perfect time, 2004 for uni, and then this scene, and I was an enemy writer at the time, and this scene just kind of unfurled in oh, front of me. And I, I remember going gig after gig and going, I found another one. Like, I remember seeing Arctic's the first time. A few weeks later, yeah. I saw Milburn. A few weeks later, I saw Bromes Jacket. Then I got to know your brother, and, you know, he was originally in 1984, then Reverend. You think... 
I can't believe all these bands. I, I almost at one point questioned whether my mind was was convincing me that there was a scene here when there wasn't. But then when all those bands took off, you thought, well, it can't just be me making this up for the sake of it. It actually, there is something happening here. And I think it's interesting that you said there about a lot of the bands being from kind of the northern area of Sheffield, you know, towards kind of Barnsley way. You know, everyone knows Monkeys are high green and, and kind of around there. And I don't know, you're not from far from there either. It's weird because, I mean, we played in a Sunday League football team called Exfield Red Rose. There were me, all of Milburn played in it, Cookie from Monkeys played in it. Um, and I think, obviously, the national press don't really want to delve into where this came from. But if you are a bit of a muser, I think this certain, Milburn def, definitely deserve credit for the fact that they were in bands when they were like t- proper teenagers, like 12. And what, when they used to put gigs on at, say, like, 14, 15, you, you know what it's like when, like, someone at school's in a band, everyone went to Boardwalk in Sheffield, mm. and that's where a lot of people met by watch, through watching them. Um, so they had a large role in it. And I think what my brother did, my brother is an extremely intelligent lad, and... When he saw what the Libertines were doing with this DIY sort of do-it-yourself, guerrilla gig sort of thing, my brother saw, and this talking on forums, it might sound crazy now, but that's kind of what were happening. What My brother saw that what Pete were doing and Carl were really like tuning into something. So my brother basically started doing it up in Sheffield and it got that scene mentality to it and that that deserves some credit as well. Mm, I remember him playing in my living room one day. He just turned up and played in my student <laughs> living room. Probably because he wanted something. Probably because he knew we had, we had something he wanted. Oh, yeah. They were always a method behind his madness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean... Well, he did create... Well, but my brother taking control of that situation and putting that on him, almost being like figurehead for it, he did create like a bit of a... It's us against the world or it was against London or it was against you know what I mean again there's that like togetherness yeah yeah absolutely yeah which were really strong and then once national pressure twigged on it looked like an absolute scene and you saw it naturally but you were like what is going on up in Sheffield we've totally missed both oh the thing that used to get on my nerves though is when I would read the forums of the bands and they would think that when NME were writing about these bands it was someone in London coming up to see it or is it was me in my student flat who was yeah, going to the gigs I every night? You were actually, well, even me, I'm going to be honest, I, I assumed you travelled up from London. I didn't know you lived in Sheffield. No, so the story of me is I'm from Manchester originally, went to uni in Sheffield 2004, and the scene right. just kind of kind of happened in front of me, no. I mean, I eventually moved to London later on, but um, but yeah, no, I, I, was, I was living there at the time. I wouldn't have been able to afford to come up to Sheffield as often as you'd have seen me out. Whoa, that's, you just landed, you landed on an absolute, like, what a beautiful moment to land on. Literally the second night, and I've mentioned this on a previous podcast, but second night at uni, I remember going out to the pub and seeing uh, a mate, one of the house, one of my housemates, one of his mates came up to me and said, oh, you're that guy that writes for NME, got to go and see this band Arctic Monkeys, they're like, they're like really starting to kick off, and I went, that sounds like a shit name for a band, I'm not going to bother going to see them, <laughs> so it took me about six months before I went to see them, but I thought... God, if I'd actually gone and seen them at the Grapes, I'd, I'd have been there even sooner, you know. Unbelievable. Where did you first see them, then? It would have been the Harley. 
uh, Harley in about two thousand, yeah. sort of March two thousand and five. Uh, then the lead mill, then uh, then all over Nottingham, Wigan. I mean, again, these are the days where they'd invite me on the tour bus and take me to the gig before before they realised what I was actually like, you know. <laughs> so are you, are you still in touch with all of them now? Uh, yeah, but not as much as, like, obviously, they live a completely different life to me. But um, I was very, very... I still see Alex. I tend to get together with Alex when they play, when they play a gig in Sheffield. And uh, it's a bit of a tradition that he comes round to my mum's house at Christmas. Um, you know, he alternates now between LA and Sheffield for Christmas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, when he's in when he's on Sheffield Leg, he'll come round like and we'll just have like drinks, just listen to tunes and catch up. But uh, still, see the elders through it. But yeah, when they're in town, I mean, I were like, I were really close with Alex, but my real like, I were like a brother to Andy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's really the only downside to the old stories when Andy left, like. Is the period that like were really upsetting, really, um, and then, you know everyone can talk about it now and it's cool, but at the time it were it were pretty good. I mean, this is the thing that no, I don't think anyone really knows, which is that I I knew about that way before it happened, and I didn't yeah. put it in the enemy. See, that that might be your uh, golden ticket away from pro evolution soccer. Well, yeah, you can mention that. To be fair, yeah, take. T- I've I've never I've never mentioned this publicly, but what happened was I went to a Reverend the Makers gig. I think it was in Manchester, and his manager at the time I can't remember the guy's name, but I think he's featured yeah. in in one of the songs. It wouldn't have been Jeff, no, it was um, someone that's brother's manager, Mark yeah, Jones. Might have been. I, I actually can't remember the guy's name, but I think he right. he subsequently wasn't the manager. Put it like that, and I think he's mentioned in some of some of John's lyrics at so, somewhere right. somewhere down the line, and. Um, he told me on the Snakes Pass between Manchester and Sheffield, we were driving between the two. Um, let's say that the police might have wanted to speak to him about his driving. I won't say any more than that. But, you know, if it had been stopped, he probably wouldn't have carried on much further. And, uh, and yeah, he, he, he told me the full story. And then I sat there and thought, if I run straight to the enemy with this story now, then none of these bands will ever speak to me again. So I kept it under my hat until, well, until now. Because it then the Fair play, the official story obviously came out. Um, I've I've heard different stories. I don't, I don't even need to go into now what those stories are. But um, you know, it was it was one of those where I thought if I do if if I if I take the short term view and take a few hundred quid from the Sun or the Enemy, then uh, none of these bands are ever ever going to let me play Pro Evolution Soccer with them again. So so I didn't. Respect me, Eric. Yeah, I mean, he was like. Our man and Andy's relationship were intense, like we were like brothers, and um, to see him go to that high and experience that, then to come for it all to be like swept away, we're just. I mean, he's, he's, I've got an amazing story actually, an amazing story about the week that you left the band. Um, so. He came to live with me in Manchester for a week because press were after him and they were all kicking off. And essentially he just locked himself in my room in Manchester, uh, which I can't blame him for. And so we're just like playing Pro Evo, 
we are cheating in my uh, hmm. bedroom in Manchester. Um, and we, we were, it was like soul searching. So about, say, he left on Monday, on like Thursday, we were in my bedroom in Manchester, and it come on the radio that, let me backtrack here because this story's been, it's great. While I were at uni in Manchester, I took a job at the Lowry Theatre. Uh, basically behind bar and the week before Andy leaves the manager calls us in and tells us that we're going to have to start doing table service with trays right. and, we're, and we're in it okay so I'm having none of it <laughs> no, so of course I'm you're like, not no. fuck it I'm not serving fucking pints of Boddington's to Peter Barlow mate you know, fucking <laughs> that's, just, that's just not happening so he's like Chris coming off it, so he says to me, um, "What's crack?" I says, "I didn't fucking sign up for that." He says, I'll, I'll, "I'll pour drinks and that behind bar and have a chat, but I'm not. No way am I serving drinks with a pinny around me." So, he, so it's a negotiating thing. He let me and this other manky kid uh, work under cellar at Lowry Theatre. Right. Um, just basically, his job work to go down and sh- like cart loads of ale around and get it to the right place and just put crates and, you know. So, one day he comes down, obviously we partaked in a, like a couple of crates went missing and we had an hiding place and we used to like <laughs> drinking that downstairs. His founders like eating ice, no, no, we, we took some ice cream out of the fridge and we were eating it out of the freezers. And uh, essentially we both got sacked on spot. But it was like one of them zero-hour things. So it was like, you know, don't turn up again. Mm. So, I, so then, and then this thing kicks off with Andy and he comes to stay with me in Manchester week after. So I'm like, well, I ain't really got a job, mate. Like, and I'm, uni's a bit quiet. So we were just like a mong and I in my flat, really. Comes on radio that week that Noel Gallagher's doing a secret gig at the Lowry Theatre for XFM. I remember this, yeah. I feel like I might have been at that. I don't know. I think I was. Yeah, I think I was at that gig, actually. Well, like an acoustic tour. Yeah, I remember uh, this. I'm pretty sure I was there. Pretty sure. So I'm like, Andy, let's let's go to this gig. He's like, Andy had this number for Noel because they played with him in Canada, but he was like, he looked like a foreign number. He wasn't going to work this. So Andy's like, I'll send a text to him, but I don't think he's, like, he's going to receive it. Lo and behold, don't, we didn't hear anything, but the gig's like tonight, so we, we were for competition winners. So we're like, He'd not been out of the house, so I basically took him out and got him, like, mortally drunk. And uh, he'd, like, completely come out of his shell for the first time. So I've had this amazing idea in toilet that I know all the codes to lift in Lowry Theatre. So I'm like, let's just rock up. I, I can get us into dressing room because I used to, because I've, I've just, I've been working there. <laughs> Andy was sober, he'd never agreed to this, but I'm like, come on. So he jumps in a taxi, gets down to uh, Lowry End. A few of the staff are like, oh, Chris is here, he must be going to gig, bloody blah, and then they're all, like, fussing over Andy. So Andy sees this guy from, like, one of, who's promoting, he's like, yeah, I'll sort your heart. Meanwhile, I'm in Lyft, like, and I'm coding this number into Lyft, because we're in bar area. End, ends up me and Andy's in this Lyft, and I've got us, bang, smack into Noel Gallagher's dressing room. We're not invited to Noel here, we've got a ticket mm-hmm. roll. Worst thing that could have happened, there's no one in dressing room at all. Not a single soul. But there's like this buffet laid out and like all <laughs> these drinks. And I'm like, shit, 
he's not here. No one's here. So what? he's like, what are we doing now? Just hanging around. And I'm like, yeah. So we're like basically sat in Noel Gallagher's dressing room like, waiting for him. Just pissed out. Cracked up in a bottle and that. <laughs> just like, what? He's going to fucking laugh. I'm thinking, is he going to lob his eye? Next thing, he comes round corner. Straight away, he's like, Andy, man. He knew exactly what had gone on. So he's giving Andy a, like, a massive hug and he's, Andy introduces me and I'm like, re- it's the first time I'd ever met him, so I'm like properly fanboy, like in awe of him. So we're trying to play, play it very cool. So Andy's like, uh, have you got tickets? Uh, who's got you in line? He's like, oh, now uh, Chris has got us down here. He got sacked from here, like, so he's winning. <laughs> like, you cheeky bastards. Well, you just fucking walked in. It's like, yes, he loves it. So he's getting us these like, Access all areas like big daddy passes. Uh, dedicates talk tonight to Andy during gig. So Andy's like in tears. Like it's all going off. I remember. I think. I, I think I remember this. I think I wrote the story around that very angle. That that was the angle I went with. So we've gone back downstairs. He's told us to come back downstairs. So now we're invited. We've got a pass on it. It's all coaching now. So we've gone in and like all like Noel's aunties and like and cousins are in this room and that Noel's like. Just Ray Cool was saying like, so Andy says to him, "Do you recognise my mate's face?" And I'm, he says, "No, never seen him in my life." He's like, "You do? You know him?" He's like, "Never seen him in my life, mate. Trust me." He's like, "He's kid off our album, so Noel's like fucking loving it," and I'm like loving him. So it's just like this big love off between me and him. He says, "Come in next room. I, uh, I, 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 someone's gonna love to meet you. Come in next room." So he's like. Making me like meeting all his live family and that, and I goes in the next room and Peter Case sat there with his missus. So I'm like, oh my god, what's going on here? So I'm sat with Noel, Peter K, uh, and Andy in this private room. Next thing, I swear to Anne, the guy who sacked me walks in. Oh no. <laughs> we all this like memorabilia that he obviously wants to get signed for his kids and that. Looks at me. His face goes bright. What are you doing in here? What are you doing in here? <laughs> so, like, fucking... Oh, God, it's terrible, really. Noel's gone, hold on a minute, mate. He's like, guess what, what's crack here? I says, so I says, do you know I told you that story about me getting sacked with nicking ice cream? He sacked me. <laughs> so it's all gone right weird. Like, I felt right back. Obviously, the manager's like, wants to swirl to swallow him up now. He's like, uh, Chris, Chris, um... It's all water under bridge, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. He's like, can I get you any drinks, though? So Noel's like, oh, yeah, we love, yeah. I says, yeah, go on, I'll have some drinks. Very man, I've been sacked for nicking them. What can I get you? He says, just, I'll have a bottle of lager, mate. Noel shouts up, I felt, Noel shouts up, and by the way, get us four tubs of ice cream, and all. <laughs> oh, I'm a fucking eye, his pants down. But, uh yeah, that was, that was, and it was just, uh, it's stories like that where I think, that's fucking brilliant, what a fucking time to have experienced everything going on, but yeah, I love that story. Feels like a, a good place to round off, to be honest, and I mean, you know, you you know, you, you forever will be immortalised on that debut album, and you know, you've, you've toured as a musician yourself, and obviously you, you've got a documentary that you work, you know, you've been working on, and it's released, really sort of being released at the moment, so... Where do you see your career going next? What 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 are you planning on doing next? Um, well, I'm currently studying, or I'm lucky enough to be able to study occupational therapy, um, which is something I'm interested in. Uh, and so I'm, I'm doing that. Uh, 
interest. I want to write a comedy, if I'm honest. Uh, I released some comedy videos online six years ago, like I said. And due to numerous issues that we've discussed, I never felt that like giving it my full throttle. There's a lot of things that I feel I didn't give my all to. And I'm not saying this as in terms of like, I want to write and I want to get it on telly and I want to, it's just very much I want to get it out of me, that creative thing, do you know what I mean? Um, so I'm going to be writing that. Um, I've done these documentaries, I'm studying, so there's a lot going on and a lot to look forward to really. I feel like 30 is a lot different to your 20s for anybody. Mm. Um, kind of got that experience, haven't you? And you're still young enough to do stuff, so I'm looking forward to the next few years. Well, speaking as a fellow 33-year-old, I hope I've got plenty of road in front of me as well as well as you have. Yeah, and with all that experience behind you, it's good, mate. It's a good place to be, I think. Well, good, you know, obviously good luck with that. Uh, looking forward to seeing the rest of the uh, documentaries. Obviously, we'll put the links in uh, in the episode description so everyone can see those. Otherwise, yeah, thanks for a, a kind of unexpectedly hilarious trip down memory lane. We started with a fairly, some, you know, fairly serious chat, but then we, yeah, moved into... No, you've got to laugh at the same time. But yeah, thanks for talking to us, Chris. No, it's been good, man. I'll, uh, I'll update you on your next episode about Andy's, uh, what Andy, your bargaining, uh, about your bargaining plea to Andy. I think we can have some peace talks here. Sounds good to me. Like Israel and Palestine coming back together, yeah? Cheers, Chris. Cheers, Rick. Thanks a lot, mate. So as I was saying, I really liked this interview. It was really good to listen to on the way to the airport. Um, And I just picked out a few. I was writing notes, trying to navigate the airport, but also writing notes on my phone. So I'm surprised I didn't bump into anything or fall down an escalator. Um, But I just wanted to kind of pick out a few things that I thought were quite nice from the interview or quite, um, what's the word? Intriguing. Intriguing, yeah. Um, So one of the things he said is, uh, you don't wear the flag around saying you don't drink booze. And this is what I was talking about earlier. So if you go out, sometimes it's really hard for you to to be out and and be the person not drinking. Because a lot of people still don't really understand why, why you don't do it. Rick's pointing to himself. Why are you pointing to yourself, Rick? Well, because I've not drank for a couple of months. <laughs> but have you been out in a, in a social situation where someone's asking you why you don't drink? Probably not as far as that, no. Uh, I'm trying to think. No, yes, I have actually. There've been my, I went out for a drink with an old drinking buddy from one of my old workplaces. And uh, I, mean, I ended up only staying probably about 45 minutes because once you've had two lime and sodas, you... Um, not much else to do. Not much else to do, yeah. <laughs> so that's maybe what it means is that you're more efficient in your socialising. You know, you catch up and then you move on. Well, maybe that that is definitely true. But also it kind of brings me on to another point that he said. He said he's been more productive in the last six months than he has in the last seven years. Imagine that. Six months, seven years just because he hasn't been drinking alcohol. I mean, that's insane in itself, right? I mean, it is. And I think, you know, in the interview, I said to, to Chris about how I'm kind of questioning my relationship with alcohol at the moment. Not, not that I ever think I've even been anywhere near alcoholic. And, you know, I'd even say that, you know, in recent years, I was a classic glass of wine with a meal on a Friday and maybe one on Saturday. But other than that, it's not even like a binge of five or six glasses, it's, it's one or two. But it's interesting how even when you're on the edge of not really drinking a lot and then you go to nothing, that you do kind of notice the difference. And it's made me question whether I will whether I will go back. You know, the festive season's coming up, so that'll be the true test of, of whether I carry on. This is, And as I said to Chris, this is part for me of a broader health kick 
not just alcohol, kind yeah. of a whole range of things, and I'm kind of very all or nothing. But I think as well it goes into that conversation of right around binge drinking, doesn't it? So I'm sort of a bit... I don't drink during the week, but then I'll go out at a weekend and I can drink quite a lot. Um, not proud of it sometimes, but that's that's kind of my friendship group and that's what we do. Um, so there's a lot of talk around, you know, if it's also very hard for, for kind of the friendship groups that you are within... Um, if you suddenly, if I suddenly decided to just stop drinking, well, actually, that would kind of alienate me from a lot of the the, the fun that my friendship group has. Whether that's right or wrong, I'm kind of thinking about it. Um, you know, what would I be able to go out and have as much fun and stay out and enjoy my night as much if I wasn't drinking? I don't think I could at this moment in time. Do I need to? No, I don't think I do need to because I'm absolutely fine. But if you know, there have been times where I haven't been that okay, and. I know that if I'm ever in that kind of mental state, I shouldn't be drinking as mm. much as I prob- mm. as I probably would be normally. Um, so I think it's all case by case, but it does bring. There's a lot of conversation to kind of be be had around what it actually means for people individually as well, and their and their their friendship groups that they keep and family and all of that kind of stuff. So it's not. There's no one straight answer. I don't think. I think it's an interesting point you raise there about you know in your current life state. You know we're roughly the same age. But we went down very, very different paths. You know, I had kids when I was 23, which didn't necessarily curb me from going out completely. But eventually, when when you've got four kids and uh, they don't all live in one location, and you you're having to kind of um, organise your life, there comes a point where there isn't as much room for alcohol. But I can see how, where you know, when the kids grow up and get older, you know, maybe that's the point where I kind of get my second youth again, and and you get in with that group who who go out more. I mean, I live in a village at the moment where they're talking, because it's so new, they're talking about building a pub. They haven't actually built it yet. <laughs> Brilliant. It'd be interesting to see when that pub exists, whether that becomes kind of part of the the routine of us and other kind of friends and family who live around there. Yeah, it probably will. I, but I think that's an, another interesting point about um, the da- the death of the pub culture these days. Um, I mean, it's still definitely out there, but it is a dying culture. And with the, the, the younger generations, they're not drinking as much, so therefore the pub's are losing money therefore closing down what's replacing that we Mm. don't know at the moment Mm. live music's changed a lot so to go and you know you don't just go down the local pub to see a band anymore you have to uh, you know pay a bit more to go to a proper gig venue or a proper venue like the o2 or whatever it is so it's all it's all massively changing but anyway we've massively digressed there but i thought that part about him being more productive was really it was really key and interesting in that sense um Another thing I quite liked him saying is that in terms of um, uh, live events, he said you can't pull the rung under that because the whole industry will fall apart. So he's talking about sponsorship money from alcohol brands. So if you look, if you look at the, he was talking about the Leeds and um, Reading Festival, it's the Carling Well, it Festival. used to be. It's not it anymore, used to be, it used yeah. to be the Carling weekend, yeah. But I loved his idea, and I really hope he continues to kind of go down the path with this, and I hope he's got other people that are behind him in this as well but he's talking about um, putting a support network in the industry as a much better idea so you can't take that money away because where is it going to come from but actually if you put a support network in then it's probably going to be more helpful for people because they'll have something there to help if they need to kind of fall back on something I really liked that yeah it's almost like the, the moment that the industry provides kind of you know, the uh, gigs and tours and events and festivals are awash with alcohol, but there's no safety net that's kind of been put underneath, is there, for the people who, who kind of naturally, you know, you, you ply 100 bands with booze every night, you know, someone in at least one of those bands, if not a number of them, will become alcoholics as a result of that. A lot won't. 
Yeah. yeah we're not saying that, you know, that um, you ply people with enough alcohol, everyone becomes an alcoholic. But, you know, it's that safety net for the people who fall through the cracks. You know, and even in society, it's not that easy for people to get help. Um, another thing I thought was quite funny was he was talking about uh, on a rider, you'd have essentially bread and cheese and a load of beer uh, or a load of alcohol. Um, I actually remember, it brought back a memory of me being at a block party gig about 15 years ago. And uh, I was backstage with my mate in their dressing room and on their rider was no booze and just um, raw broccoli and raw hmm. vegetables. Hmm. And at the time, that was a bit weird. I remember thinking, this isn't fun. Why? I remember having a piece of raw broccoli because it was there, thinking, this is really rubbish. It turned out Kelly had been really health conscious and had wanted that to be on the rider but mm. it just brought back that memory because you know i would seen a lot of other riders in my time and they were not nothing like that um but he was kind of, kind of forward thinking i guess in the in the health and it'd be i wonder if some of the riders these days are a bit more like that than um than just bread and cheese than back in the day I don't, I don't see enough riders anymore to know no i don't either i haven't seen one in years we so need to remember to ask know. this well, oh yeah. Next just time we interview a band, just generally. Well, if anyone out there is listening, I'm sure there's pl- a lot of people who are listening that know what's on a rider these days. So tell us, please do tell us. We want to know. I tell you, he'll be enjoying this chat now about what's on your rider. Is one of my old mates at NME, Jamie Fullerton, who appeared on our Libertines episode. Yeah. We, we made this concept up when I worked at NME. This is a huge digression, but it's worth it. Of there being a news bot who worked for NME because at the time we were hiring these people who were so terrible at doing interviews, they would robotically interview bands for the website. To the point we said, well, why don't we just hire a news bot that literally you program and it says, what is on your rider? <laughs> who is your favourite Simpsons character? <laughs> we, we, and for years we've talked about this concept of a news bot and the fact that we've now landed on news bots kind of prime question, which is, what is on your rider? <laughs> Jamie will be loving this if no one else. Brilliant. Well, maybe maybe you guys should create it. Maybe you could brand it the demo tapes uh, newsbot. Newsbot. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> and maybe newsbot could come up with the jingle as well. Yeah, I was going to. I was literally about to say, could that be the jingle? Um, <laughs> let's let's do it. And then the one final thing uh, I have to talk about is the Noel Gallagher story. That's just absolutely. Oh, that's the bit I was kind of ro- walking through the airport, almost in tears, like listening to this going. It is so great. And it reminds me of some of the stuff I used to get up to, like when I was a bit younger. So the Pete Doherty interview, I think we've talked about that before and just kind of sneaking backstage places. Even I went so far at one festival as to climb under fences to get backstage to try and meet Grace Jones. Hmm. (laughs) So we turned up at the backstage, but we made it all Mm. muddy Mm. and (laughs) like looking like we'd just been in a commando film. Um, but yeah, all, all these sorts of stuff. But that Noel Gallagher story is brilliant. That boss I mean, the, the thing, must have the, just been like, what? The <laughs> thing about this story is, this is what I mean about this interview took a different turn than I expected. It was supposed to be a serious chat about addiction and alcohol and mental health, which is, I think we did. But then naturally the conversation turned. And yeah, th- this, this is one of the funniest an- anecdotes <laughs> I've ever heard. It's interesting that you say as well that, you know, you compared it to the times where you were sneaking backstage at Libertines gigs and festivals. By this point, Andy Nicholson had had a number one album. He'd been on, oh, I don't think they played Top of the Pops, but you know, he, he, was, a, he was a national star yeah. and yet had sneaked into an old Gallagher gig. And, so um, great, so great. And it's interesting that you raise kind of Andy Nicholson as a, as a topic, I guess, because again, not something I went in intending to talk about with, with Chris. He's sort of re-emerged in recent weeks. You know, he's done quite a, um, quite a raw 
an emotional interview with the Michael Anthony show, uh, another podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I've seen this on Twitter. I've seen him tweet about it. And what's really interesting here is that he has never publicly spoken about when he left the Arctic Monkeys, and it's something I remember quite vividly. You know, I was in Sheffield at the time. By this point, I'd been banned from interviewing the Arctic Monkeys because of the um, the, FIFA, the Pro Evo incident on the tour bus. But obviously, I knew everyone else around this scene. You know, I knew John McClure. I knew all the managers and the people kind of um, involved. And there was a bit of a story there with Andy Nicholson that was that was never really told. He never spoke about it. I remember seeing him in a venue in Sheffield not long after it happened and said, look, if you ever want to kind of come and tell your side of the story I'm always here to kind of give a sort of sympathetic ear and he's done it now and at the literally the week you've been talking about it with somebody else he he must have been in the pipeline for him to talk to this yeah, this yeah. podcast for a while possibly and I think you know he's also re-emerging with some new music yeah, Gold yeah, Teeth yeah. you know he's bringing out some some new tunes um, and you know look ultimately we don't we are this podcast often kind of exists in a bubble where we are the only podcast out there and we don't reference others but I think it's well worth going and having, obviously once you finish listening to us, <laughs> go and have a listen to this interview with, with Andy, because I guess in a way it's it's kind of what we've been doing with artists as well. It, it, you know, it sound, it's, it's a similar in style, I guess, interview to what we did with Tom Clark and John McClure and, and Phil from The Twang. Um, and I think as well it'd be, I'd be really keen to get Andy on, um, on our podcast as well, not necessarily to go over all the same ground that he has with, you know, with the Michael Anthony show, but some of those kind of shared memories and experiences from Sheffield and coming through in the Sheffield music scene because Michael actually admits he's never been to Sheffield he's a big fan of the Arctic Monkeys but he's he's never been to Sheffield so I think there's some more ground to go over there yeah definitely I'd love to hear that as well um so hopefully we can get him on at some point um, yeah watch this if, <laughs> if he wasn't was he affected by the the uh the pro evo is it pro evo is he, how you say it? was well, he affected by or was he one of the kind of ones in the, the eye of the storm so maybe he hasn't forgiven you well this is what Chris says in the interview he says that actually you know Andy will always brings it up of oh no not that Rick Martin yeah, he's yeah, the one yeah, who cheated yeah, yeah. it a pro Evo. I, I would just love to know whether he's e- whether he's even got over it now, like 13, 14 it years ago. It could be funny. It could be funny, but yeah. Um, I I think just one one of the thing I've just forgotten about actually. We didn't talk about Shazam. Can we go back to talking about Shazam? I mean, <laughs> I guess it could be a good way to round off the episode. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Because I, you know, I bring I bring notes into the little thing, so I don't forget. I've got a really bad memory, but just I really wanted to. Um, talk about a couple of tunes I know we put these on our playlist every week oh every week or every time it goes out but um, a Jamiroquai song uh, called Hot Tequila Brown and it's it's weird because I've never heard it before and it's on the Dynamite album so I should have heard it or maybe I just heard it and forgotten about it um, are you a Jamiroquai fan? I mean I almost filed Jamiroquai next to Simply Red in a way yeah I think I get what you mean um, I, that's another another one that I'm like massively keen on I just think Jamiroquai was just so amazing at the time and his dancing. I've, t- I've told you my Ibiza Jamiroquai story, right? In fact, maybe I can't talk about it on the podcast. It's a bit too defamatory. I might get in trouble. But anyway, yeah. Um, when we'll I was, check with the lawyers when, and then come back next week. When I was 13, I'll go this far. When I was 13, I was dancing next to JK in uh, Pasha. My dad let me go to Pasha when I was 13. Yes, he did in Ibiza. Um, wasn't drinking or anything, obviously. I was 13 years old. No, but, no um, one drinks in Pasha anyway. No, it's too expensive. I think it was even like eight, eight pounds at the time for a water. I don't even think we drank any water <laughs> we could have been and th- there's a reason for that there's a reason for that yeah um but yeah so that song and also uh, another really good one um henry texia uh lilalba i don't know how to pronounce it properly um i assume it's a french guy <laughs> um 
a Bonobo remix of that song. And Bonobo is one of my favourite DJs and producers from Bristol in England. I don't know if you've heard much about Bonobo. Yeah, Bonobo is the type of artist that some of the kind of hipster people that I didn't like in my kind of social circle at uni in those times was into. So I kind of... I kind of ignored people like that because that's who the hipsters were into. But probably now, with my uh, with my kind of uh, cynical shades taken off, like maybe I can. It's getting better and better. Um, and there's one more thing I have to say, and um, it's about Peggy Goo. So Peggy Goo is a Korean female DJ. She's also just launched a fashion label. She is absolutely amazing. She's she's got everything. She's like she's beautiful. She she's got the best taste in music. She's a super, become a superstar DJ, DJ all around the world. If you look at her Instagram account, you'll see why. Um, she went back home last week, and I was looking at her stories, and she was playing this incredible record. Um, and she tagged in a DJ called DJ Soulscape. Um, I don't know what the song is. I messaged her. She obviously hasn't read it to see what it was, but I can't find the song anywhere and I'm absolutely gutted. Um, I've been literally trying to go on DJ Soulscape's uh, SoundCloud and Discogs to see if I can hear it. But you know one of those? I tried Shazam it. Obviously, it's a bit too rare to be able to be found on Shazam. So a bit gutted. I'm going to try and find it out and I'll, I'll let you know. But um it was uh, Peggy Goo is another recommendation. I think you should listen to Rick. Well, I mean, as I said on a previous episode, I, I often discover music I've never heard before that I have in my head as an earworm. So maybe that's what you need to do: just kind of go to sleep and dream, then the song might appear. Well, also there were no words, and I can't really remember what the song sounded like. So I think it's one of those things that if I heard it again, I'd know. But I, I, I can't, I can't, just don't know. So I feel like we maybe need to this. This needs to become a permanent section of of demo tapes. It was Sarah's Shazams, or maybe we even do. Maybe that needs a jingle as well. Alliteration, I love it. Works. So I guess we'll wrap up there, Sarah. A lot, a lot to chew on this week. I feel like we've covered we've covered a lot of ground, more ground than I think we often cover in these episodes. Yeah, I think we're getting a bit more in tune with every week that goes on. I'm kind of banking things as they happen, music-wise, um, and I write down little notes. So we've got more to talk about. Just kind of, it's becoming a bit more natural to go. You know, if our lives are based around music, a lot of it is, and it's it's weird to actually think how much of it is when you're kind of in a situation going right. I need to write that down because I need to talk about that on demo tapes. Um, but yeah, I think we're probably getting a bit better at that now, aren't we? Yeah, and uh, you know, we'd love to hear your feedback on kind of the shape and direction of some of these episodes, some of the topics we're uh, talking about. You know, we've had loads of great feedback for the Tom Clark interview and the Phil from the Twang interview, and uh, yeah, keep keep that coming. Keep the five star ratings on iTunes coming. But where can people get in touch with us, Sarah? The email is demotapespod at gmail.com. Yeah, and we are on Twitter and Instagram at demotapespod. Um, on Instagram, I'm, I am Sarah Jane Kemp. And Rick on Twitter is... Rick underscore J underscore Martin. There we go. That's it. That's how you can get in touch with us. Um, thanks for listening again. It's been a pleasure. Um, and we will see you next time. Uh, we've got some really good stuff coming up in the pipeline. So excited to share it with you. Yep, see you next time. Bye.